This is the MS Show, the podcast for people with multiple sclerosis and their families who want information and inspiration. I'm Bron Webster. I've been living with MS for over 20 years. I'll be sharing with you tips, stories and ways to keep going with MS. Hi, I'm really excited for today's episode because I'm talking with John Strom and John is an MS advocate and he's a podcast host extraordinaire. He's got his own podcast, Real Talk MS, and he does loads and loads for the MS community. Hi, John. It's nice of you to join me today. Uh, Hi, it's great to be with you. So, John, I sort of contacted you because of your involvement with Jean, your wife, and you were her carer. And that's what the series is that I'm putting together at the moment. So I thought John's got one, the most amazing voice, but I guess number two, you've probably got an amazing story as a carer for for Jean. So I'll hand over to you a little bit and maybe you can tell us a little bit of your and Jean's story. So let me tell you a little bit about Jean. Um, She was diagnosed with secondary progressive MS in 1997. And it was a particularly aggressive case. Um, When she was diagnosed up to that point, she had been an avid cyclist. She'd get up 4 a.m. every morning to go ride 40 miles a day, uh, Monday through Friday, and on weekends, she'd do a much longer ride as a matter of fact. So she was very physically active. Um, Within roughly three years, maybe three years and a couple months, uh, she found herself in a wheelchair. And her, um, unfortunately, the progression of her disease moved rapidly and it just affected her in every way. Jean was a writer, and unfortunately, the very first symptom she developed uh, that led her to be diagnosed was a tremor. Tremor was in one finger of one hand, but in very short order, that tremor spread to her hand, to her arm, up to her head, and to her other arm. So when you have severe tremor in both hands, well, you, you can't do much much work on a keyboard. So no. she immediately lost her ability to work. Um, the disabilities seemed to pile up faster than we could keep track of them. And she was diagnosed in 97 and, and by 2001, I had stopped working um, and just stayed home to, to be her primary carer. Um, And I I did that for about a little more than 10 years. And um, I wish Jean's story was a a, a bit happier and even more pleasant than it it is. Uh, In that time, she lost her ability to walk. She had cognitive decline, couldn't use either hand. Her vision was impacted. She had assistance breathing and, uh, and received all her nutrition 
by means of a feeding tube because you can no like a peg swallow. tube. Yeah. A called a peg. Yes. Feeding tube, yeah. So um, after about 11 years, and, and in that time, by the way, within, over the last, say, two or three of those years, I had brought in a live-in registered nurse to assist me in assisting Jean. That level of care was still not sufficient. And um, unfortunately, after about 11 years, she needed to be transferred first to a skilled nursing facility. But as her disease progression continued, she eventually was transferred to what we call a, a subacute nursing facility, which is quite similar to a, a, a full-blown hospital in every respect, except they don't have departments like maternity and things like that. Um, Jean finally passed away from complications due to MS just a year ago this past February. So that, that was her story, and that was kind of the way I interacted as her carer. Mm -hmm. um, she required assistance with so many things, uh, feeding, medication, any number of appointments. Uh, over the first several years following her diagnosis, as, as her condition continued to progress, we were pretty aggressive in terms of trying to find adequate treatment um, to first manage her tremor, uh, because when you can't use either hands, think about all the things you can't do. Mm. You can't dress yourself. You can't uh, eat. You can't, you can't really do much of anything. And so we really wanted to see if that could be managed. And unfortunately, as specialists will tell you, it's, it's, it is one of the most difficult uh, MS symptoms to try to manage. Fortunately, only about 25, 28% of the people with MS develop tremor. Um, but long story short, we weren't successful in any of those endeavors. Um, we tried deep brain stimulation, uh, multiple surgeries, all sorts of, as I said, pretty aggressive steps. Um, so it, it, it involved getting her to appointments. Uh, and, and even once she was no longer at home, when she was in the nursing facilities that she was in, I continued to visit her every day. Yeah, yeah. And that was like the emotional caring side of life, I guess. It, it, it was the emotional caring and it was also um, advocacy. I, I find that anytime someone is in a medical facility, be it nursing care, hospital, or something in between, I think it's very important to make sure that there is an advocate for that patient because Jean had become nonverbal. That advocate was me. Yeah. Yeah. And you were the per only person that was going to make sure that she was getting the best and what she deserved. That, that, that was the mission. Yes. Yeah. And what a mission that is such a difficult mission. And at this point in time, were you getting any feedback from Jean? Well, as I said, she'd become nonverbal. And so mm. the way we communicated is I would ask a yes or no question 
and she would blink for yes or mm -hmm. sometimes blink once for yes twice for no something like this so we did it a number of different ways mm -hmm. and um and that's how we communicated so that was the feedback i received uh and and frankly in the last um probably eight nine months of her life she could no longer even blink that is really severe and that is really that is really difficult for you um so john whereabouts do you live um are you uk based or are you Across no, actually, the I, I, I live in the U.S. and I am just um, a few miles south of Los Angeles. Okay, just to get a sort of understanding of um, the systems that you're doing, what you're doing in, um, and how that might compare to here in the U.K. Um, you and Jean were together. And then she got the diagnosis. So you were together with her when she sounded like um, some kind of uh, iron woman triathlete cycling her long distances. So you were with Jean throughout this? Yeah, we had been married um, four years when she was diagnosed. Yeah. And uh, I was with her when she got her diagnosis. Uh, I was with her at every medical appointment, every one. Ironically, she got her diagnosis on her birthday, which did not make for a very happy birthday, I have to admit. No, year after year as well. But, you know, I remember, um, you know, when and, and she got confirmation, she got her diagnosis over the phone, telephone call. And she got off the phone and I could see what it was uh, and, and she just burst into tears. She was, you know, she, she cried. And the first thing that flashed in my mind is I'm gonna have to do whatever it takes to not only make sure she gets all the care that she needs, but to keep her spirits up. And, and, and that became the more challenging aspect of, of being a carer was trying to make sure that her mood, her spirits, her outlook were more positive. Yeah. And I guess the challenge sort of transfers and the challenge is also on yourself to oh, there's, keep your there's spirits no question. up. There's no question that carers have a journey that is different than the patient themselves, but nonetheless, it's a profound journey. Mm. Yeah, and have, have you kind of, at what point in the diagnosis did you transition, I guess, in terms of how you saw your role in your relationship? Or did you actually transition at any point? Well, I think, from the very beginning, when Jean was diagnosed, I recognized my role was going to be different. Uh, life had just become more complicated than it had been for her and therefore for me. Mm. So I would say whatever transition there was started on day one. But it was a very unknown 
diagnosis, really. It's a, it, nobody knows what the path looks like. Um, right. When she was diagnosed, the first thing I said to her was, well, you know what? This will be just one more thing we will get through and try as hard as I did. Ultimately, I was wrong about that. So I, I would amend it to now say, we'll get through it in the best way possible. Yeah, it's like, which, what words do you choose to sort of deal with that kind of diagnosis? Um, because it is the unknown, isn't it? So it's just knowing that you're going to be able to cope with it. It is. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, three, four, five years into that diagnosis that we came to a realization that she was dealt a particularly harsh hand. Mm. And um, there was a lot more to have to cope with than I think I even imagined in the beginning. I think probably lots of people in that situation, I think, from what you're saying. Um, and as you said and pointed out, it does feel like it was the harsher set of cards, the MS cards, if you can say that's a good hand and that's a bad hand. We, um, <clears throat> I, be I became active in the National MS Society, the local level, at, um, and the local chapter president and I became very friendly. And uh, he actually came to the house to visit. And later he recounted to me, he said, you know, I meet people living with MS every single day. I've never seen a case move this quickly or this aggressively before. Um, that shook me to the point where here we are, you know, 20 years later, I still remember that conversation mm. because I didn't have that sort of uh, context to be able to evaluate what, if, if this case of progressive MS was that different from any other. Since that time, I've yes. learned a lot, but yeah, I would not wish her particular set of symptoms on anyone and you know as far as those go it's really luck of the draw she was not very lucky yeah it's all down to where that lesion occurs isn't it and that's where we can't ever predict right we can't rest back on our laurels and think oh well this is where i'm gonna stay because there's no way of knowing but um it does sound from what you're saying as if that was that was not a set of cards that you would want anybody to be dealt at all. No, it's one of the reasons I try to be so active in the MS community, um, getting involved in some of the ways that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in, because really, I hope no other family ever has to experience all that we did. Um, so what sort of, I mean, just because you've sort of moved on to the things that you have done, what sort of um, involvement have you had and how have you managed, how have you taken those steps? Because we all understand the importance of trying to be a part of something bigger than you and how that can help. Um, so how have you managed to get 
involved? Well, initially, I had involvement locally with the National MS Society. Um, I eventually stepped away because at that time, I was very frustrated that there didn't seem to be enough focus on progressive MS. Um, and I had enough frustration to already deal with that I, that I wasn't stepping away from. So I just took a step back for a bit. And then someone from the MS Society reached out to me, sent me an email saying, you know, there's this new organization called the International Progressive MS Alliance. It's focused specifically on progressive multiple sclerosis. It was started by the major MS societies around the world, the, the, the UK society, the US society, Canada, Italy, a number of them. And um, there is a scientific steering committee that's going to sort of plot the course for research, fund research, do a lot of really important work. And they're looking for three uh, lay people who are affected by progressive MS to be members, full members of the committee. And the, the person who wrote me the email said, I think you would be perfect for this. You should apply. So I, I visited the website and I saw the opportunity to apply, felt a little bit like applying to school and uh, <laughs> filled out my application. And that, that was the beginning of an 11 month process <clears throat> excuse me, what I discovered later that I didn't know at the time, obviously, they never expected to receive almost 300 applications from, I think, 23 different countries. Wow. And, and so it, it took quite a while for them to go through the process. And, and fortunately, I was uh, selected along with um, uh, uh, Alexis Donnelly from uh, Ireland and Caroline Simcock from uh, Scotland, both of whom also live with the uh, live with progressive MS. And um, that was almost six years ago, just finishing out our six year term, as a matter of fact. So uh, wow. it, it, it and and that connection being involved in the work of the Alliance some of the most gratifying work I've ever done in my life. Uh, and, and, and up until the time I stopped working, I, I had a pretty, pretty interesting work history, nonetheless. <laughs> um, and what I found sitting in those meetings was there was remarkable, really encouraging work going on in laboratories all around the world but it wasn't easy to understand if you were not a scientist. And so I thought walking out of those meetings, more people should feel as encouraged about the future as I do. So how can I share this information? And the first thing I thought about was writing a blog. I will just write a blog about the work that's being done. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that people exactly like Gene, who had more progressive forms of MS, might be challenged to do something as simple as 
read a blog, navigate with a keyboard. It was something my wife couldn't do. So I thought, all right, that probably isn't the best solution. And then I thought about a podcast. And as I started to think about the podcast, it became more and more of a good idea. And I thought, okay, um, why limit it to progressive MS? And so that's sort of what became Real Talk MS. And, and now in the fourth year of, of the podcast, um, just launched episode number 184 today. Wow. So uh, yeah, it comes out weekly and um, it's been extremely well received, but it, it really came about as sort of an offshoot of my experience hearing all this great news and thinking if, if that could be translated into something that was easier to understand, I think people might feel a little more hopeful about where we're headed. And that, that was the goal, still is the goal. Yeah, yeah. So there's the podcast, there's yeah. the Alliance. I've become very involved with an MS research uh, organization called I Conquer MS, and I'm actually involved co-leading a research project on caregiving in particular. Um, and so that's an involvement. Uh, I, I, and and uh, of course, I, I do a lot of work on the advocacy side of MS and, uh, and I've become a trustee from the National MS Society here in Southern California. So as I said, I try to stay busy. I think, I think that's beyond busy. I think that's like busy with overtime. I think that's, um, it is so commendable, um, everything that you're doing. And I think, I've, how does that, how does where your life is now compare to what your life plans, your dreams <laughs> were? Just, just tell me how it's different. What's that old expression? Man plans and God laughs. I, th I think that uh, I think he's had more than a couple of chuckles on on my account. Yeah. Um, well, I never imagined any of this, of course. Uh, mm. uh, uh, unfortunately, our um, our MS journey. I say our because I believe MS impacts families, not just individuals. I like to tell people that you know, in my experience, MS takes no prisoners. And, and so um, it, it cost us everything, everything. Um, there is no part of my life today that resembles what it had been up to the point where Gene began developing some serious symptoms. Nothing is the same, mm -hmm. not where I live, not how I live, not what my financial security looks like, not I mean, you name it, there is no aspect of my life that is the same. So that's quite a question to ask. Every single part of life changed. Um, initially, certainly not for the better, right? Mm -hmm. But I can't say that today, you know, um, perhaps things do happen for a reason. And as I said, my work on the Alliance has turned out to be the most rewarding experience I've had. Um, the work on the podcast has been some of the most gratifying work I've had. Um, and, and you yourself must experience that same sort of thing, Brom, when you hear from 
listeners who you've connected with, who, who have, you know, walked away with a benefit just having listened to your podcast. So um, it, it's been incredibly gratifying. So right yeah. now, in almost every aspect of life, I can say, I'm in a better place. But the road to get to that point, uh, I wouldn't recommend it if you could possibly find an easier path. Yeah, it's not one, it's definitely not one of choice. No, not I, I, I always, I like to say that, you know, we belong to a club that no one ever asked to join. Yeah, and I just think it's, it's just, it's just so commendable. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way that you have given your life, you have run with God's laughter and you have found the gratitude in all of that. Um, You know, I just think you are such an amazing person to know your story, to see what you do. I just applaud you. I really do. So what kind of helped you along the way? What did you plug into if you did? Boy, I wish I had a great answer for you. I don't. Um, you, don't have, you don't have just the, the panacea for everybody that's in your situation. Is that what you're telling me, John? Yeah, if I did, if I did I'd be sharing it right and left. I, you know, um, I, I, Writing I a book. People, yeah, I tell people that I, um, I learned how to be a good carer by first making every single mistake in the book. Everyone. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure what it was. Uh, or if there was something, um, it, it, it felt uh, pretty dark. And there were times where it certainly felt isolating. Mm. Yeah. So were you stuck at home before you got the, the sort of the living care? You were the person that was on the front line for all of this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know wouldn't say I was stuck at home but I stayed at home <laughs> um uh and uh yeah and 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 it's funny even even once Jean was not even at home it still felt very isolating visiting her every day I, I, I would love to say she always got the finest care in the nursing facility she was in, but I would be lying to you. Um, mm. Nursing facilities here in the States have a lot to learn as a group. And I'm sure there are wonderful facilities that we never had the opportunity to visit or, 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 or observe. The ones she was in, and I tried to find the best ones that were available, um, still fell far short. And I think Certainly the, the U.S. and maybe beyond the U.S., people got a sense of that during the pandemic that we're in, still in the midst of when such a high percentage of the deaths in the United States occurred in nursing homes. What I heard from some nursing home uh, officials explaining it, they would frequently say how no one could be prepared for this and it just overwhelmed them and i agree with those two statements and in the nursing homes that i had observed it had nothing to do with it (laughs) um on their best days 
they frequently fell short. So my visits to Jean were, of course, to have her see a familiar face and to, and to, to spend time with her. But the advocacy part in terms of ensuring her care was the best it could be, that was trying and it was almost constant. And so uh, Frustrating. It, 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 it was a lot. Yeah, it was a yeah. lot. The, the other, while we're talking about visiting her, I didn't mention this before and I, I probably should have. The other thing Jean lost along the way, part of the, the cognitive decline she faced was she lost her short-term memory. So she knew me because she had known me for a very, very long time. However, if I would visit her on Monday, for instance, by Monday afternoon, she would have forgotten I was there. So that, that poses a couple of questions, I guess. Could you have got away with not visiting every day? Um, well, I might have gotten away with it from her perspective, but I wouldn't have gotten away with it from my perspective. Yeah. So your perspective, that's your agreement with yourself as to what this, this looks like for you. I've always found that being a carer, the thought process that goes behind what that means to any individual is going to be different but it is about that individual. It's really not about the patient. It's not about the other person. Um, it's, it's for me, I decided what would, what humanity would be. And that level of humanity meant somebody had to be there and there was nobody else. So it was me. Yeah. And so you've set your expectation of yourself and damn you if you don't deliver on it right I, I, yeah i never saw this choice yeah so i'm just wondering is that a john expectation um is that you setting yourself a really high benchmark expectation um i'm suspecting that probably everybody that's fulfilling this kind of role sets similar ridiculously high benchmarks for themselves have you seen that right. i think you're probably right yeah yeah because i've been talking to other other people along the way and hearing about the sacrifices that they've made in their own lives um and as you say it's individual to everybody but that doesn't mean that you have the ultimate power to vary it hugely from one day to the next you are working in accordance with however you've mapped it out for yourself right yeah it's um it's a such a massive undertaking you'll get no argument from me no <laughs> no um so what support from institutions that might not be the right word corporations has there been for you or have you had to, have you always had to go and seek help not for you personally but for the whole kind of the environment um is it something that's available to all like patients and carers 
in this situation in the US? Or have you got to have the financial and educational aptitude to actually go out and get this? Is there a social network? Um, there, there is. I did not find it to be useful. And, and a lot of that had to do with the standard I was willing to set versus the standard they were willing to set. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. So there is something there, but you were able to identify an alternative that fitted more closely for you and yeah. still and still fell short from what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. In so. lots of respects, yeah. And I think the same applies here in the UK as well. The social network and the benefits and the, we will give you a week's worth of money to get some respite time exists. However, you know, it's, uh, it's not enough. Okay. Um, so I know you said it about the gratitude that you feel, the love, the fulfillment that you get doing what you're doing. Um, could you convert that into any kind of words of wisdom and positive message for somebody who might be in a similar kind of situation, John? Well, sure. I'll say a couple of things. Uh, first, Jean was diagnosed, my goodness, what, 20, 24 years ago. So a lot has changed in that time. There were no high efficacy disease modifying therapies in existence at that point. Um, so I would say first on the treatment side, there are not only more options, but there are better options that are proven to really make a difference in terms of delaying progression and things like that. And I think we can take a, a, an awful lot of comfort knowing that reality. So I think on the treatment side, we're in a much better place. I think that there are more resources available today to help. Um, obviously, we have the I'm, internet. Exactly, um, and and you know that's that's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Um, it is. I, th it I think is. that the internet gives you a gateway to vast resources that can be helpful, and it also can be a great echo chamber for a lot of misinformation that sends yeah. people down rabbit holes that are not in their best interest and ultimately not helpful. So, uh, you know, uh, like most tools, it can be used for good or evil, right? Mm. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah. but, but, but certainly that did not exist. And um, I can't even imagine how much time I would have spent online in the beginning uh, when she was originally diagnosed had I had that tool at hand. It was just, just coming on board and certainly didn't have the uh, vast amount of uh, information and, and resources that it does today. I think that there are, are more resources for carers than there were before, but they also have a long way to go. Um, I, I think we can do better at, at the point of diagnosis. There needs to be a conversation so that that carer, as their responsibilities change, has an awareness 
that there are people and places available that can be helpful to them. And I think those resources exist. Carers don't always find out about them. And unfortunately, we typically throw the lifeline out to a carer when we see them struggling, when we see them facing burnout. And to, to me, that's sort of like seeing someone drowning in the water and offering to give them swimming lessons. It's not really the right time for them to learn because they're overwhelmed by their situation. Mm-hmm. So I think that the resources that exist can be better leveraged and timed so that a carer has some level of awareness that they exist and an understanding of how to access them before they start drowning. But I think the fact that those things exist is wonderful. Yeah. And can make a real difference if you know where they are and how to access them. Yeah, I think I think the resources are they're going to be of huge benefit. I think there's possibly still a reluctance for people to seek them out who might not have yet taken on that badge in their life to say, hey, I'm a carer. You're exactly right. I think that um, initially the feeling is quite the opposite. Well, I know some people develop more serious case of MS, but that won't be us. That's yeah. not going to be me. Of course, I think that's <clears throat> human nature to, to certainly hope for the best possible scenario, right? And, mm-hmm. and hopefully that happens. Mm. When it doesn't, you know, I almost see it like the conversation a neurologist has with the patient, that initial conversation about disease modifying therapy. We know that DMTs are important. We also know that not everyone starts a DMT as soon as they're diagnosed. Now, they should. (laughs) Medicine tells us they should, but Mm -hmm. they don't. And one of the reasons they don't is they're processing all of this. It's all new information. They probably want to do their own homework a little bit, and and they should. Um, But not everyone starts a DMT right away. But I think that if you happen to observe any of your symptoms, progressing or you develop a new symptom, you know about them. You have that context in the back of your mind. Oh yeah, there's that medication that I was told could be helpful. Maybe now is the time to start. I'd like to see the carer have that same framework put in place when they don't need it. So when they do, they don't necessarily feel A, there is no help and B, they they're overwhelmed. That never leads to a good outcome. No, no. And I'm wondering if it's the name, the name of a carer, or are they a partner in the in the life of MS? I don't know. It's all very difficult to, to come up with the answers to the different questions. But um, can, are you putting yourself out as a person that is setting this up? Are you kind of part of a hub for something that's being developed? I mentioned that I'm working on this research project. It's called the Care Partner Protocol. And it is designed to do exactly what I've kind of just described to you. So uh, I'm working with two uh, brilliant 
psychologists who have decades of experience specifically in the MS community, doing this under the auspices of I Conquer MS. We have a care partner advisory board of care partners who um, some may be caring for a spouse or partner, some uh, one is caring for uh, someone with pediatric MS, um, another is caring for a parent with MS. So we're trying to make sure we're getting input about the work we're doing from carers in a variety of different sorts of caring scenarios so that we cover as many bases as we can. I, I, I just, I, I think the work is really important. Um, so um, yeah, I guess I, to answer your question, yes, I'm putting myself out there to try to help forge a better solution than exists today. Yeah, and that's worldwide? Actually, we're doing the work in the US initially, and yeah. then hopefully we'll roll out well beyond that, but that's getting ahead by a couple of giant steps. So absolutely, we'll have a lot of work to do. Yeah, no, but I think people knowing that that's what you're working on and that's where it's heading and we'll sh if we can share the links and things like that, that would be really, really great. Even though it's in the US, uh, let's get some visibility. Um, and I wonder if there's anything equivalent in any, any other countries as well. So anybody that's listening to this, if you're aware of anything, then please do shout up and make sure that we can share the carer activity. I think that's really great. So, John, is there anything else that you particularly wanted to talk about? I think it's been really insightful. Oh, this has been a great conversation. I, I, yeah. I very rarely get to be on this side of the conversation. So I, mm. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. No, I've loved talking to you as well. And I think I've only recently started to see as a potential future care recipient I've only just started reading up on the impacts and talking to people about the impacts on the carers or the partners or however people see themselves. And I've had those discussions with my husband and, you know, about the future. Uh, so I just think it's something that we do need to definitely talk about. So I really appreciate, I really appreciate everything we talked about and, I think your life with Jean and your life has taken the path it's taken because of Jean. You know, I think it's an amazing, an amazing life that you can say you're ha you've had, you're having. Um, so John, just to finish off, just take the conversation totally off piste. I'm going to ask you the questions that we always end on on the MS show and they are if you could be anywhere in the world COVID doesn't feature so put COVID out of your mind if you could be anywhere in the world where would you be and what would you be drinking well not to appear to sound too patronizing but London has always been my favorite city in the world so I would be in London sipping a very dry martini at Duke's bar Okay. 
you've got a very precise where you want to be. Absolutely. And when and you're doing St. that. St. James Place. St. James Place. Th- that's okay. where you are, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if that becomes a reality, are you going to look me up and then we can drive the 60 kilometres to London and catch up with oh, you? Oh. Of, of course, of course. <laughs> and, and, and if you haven't had a martini at Duke's Bar, it will be worth the trip, I promise you. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Thanks ever so much for joining me, John. My pleasure, Bron. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's MS show. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. And if you'd like to get more involved with the MS show, why not join our Facebook community? Just search Facebook for The MS Show. Come back soon for another dose of MS information and inspiration. You've been listening to The MS Show podcast.